0: The challenge of preaching in this parable, the parable well-known as the parable of the prodigal son, is that everyone knows this parable from the wrong title. The parable of the prodigal son is not really about the prodigal son at all. If anything, the parable is about this father and about the older brother. Those are the two main characters that we're dealing here in this parable. And... The Gospel of Luke is really interesting. This section that we're in, Uh, Luke, all the way from chapter 9 to chapter 19, uh, you have this trip that Jesus is taking to Jerusalem. And the Gospel of Mark records that Jesus has set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's going toward Jerusalem, and even says that the disciples behind him, they are amazed and afraid. It's an interesting combination of, of words there that Mark uses, where it seems like, They've never seen anything like that before. You have this man, and as a leader, he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows what he's after. And he's going in front of them, and his face is set to Jerusalem. It, it, it gives this feeling of, you know, try to stop me. Try to stop me. I'm going to Jerusalem. And I have a mission. I know what I'm doing, and you follow me. Of course, he had warned the disciples several times of the reason why he was going to Jerusalem, to die and to be raised again in the third day from the Holy Spirit, But, of course, we see as the narrative goes on that the disciples didn't get much out of that. The only thing that they got from the whole message that Jesus told them several times was, we're going to Jerusalem. That's all they could think of. And throughout this whole section, one of the things that we see, and this actually starts even before chapter 9, there is always this conflict between Jesus as he on his mission to save his people and the... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the ones who were the leaders of the law. And, and the main problem that they had with Jesus was the fact that he would relate to sinners. We see that all the way back to chapter chapter 5 of Luke. Uh, I'll read verse, uh, th- verse 30 of chapter 5. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And this is the context in which we find this parable here. Uh, now, if you look at the immediate context, which is verse, so we're in chapter 15, and if you look at your Bible, the very First verse of chapter 15. This is exactly the problem. Jesus is facing at this moment. In his teaching. It says verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners. Were all drawing near to him. To hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying. This man receives sinners. And eats with them. So he told them this parable. The. Sinners that we find here, of course, uh, we are um, thankful today for Reformed theology and for how we understand concepts like total depravity. All of us, well, not really from the Reformation, from the Bible itself, but hopefully something clear to us today that we're all sinners. All of us depend on the grace of God to be saved. That's not how these many of these religious leaders saw the gospel and, and salvation. They actually were very religious men and they understood that there's something that they would do and that they were pure in contrast with these sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the thieves. And as Jesus is relating to these people, these men are complaining that Jesus is relating to them. And the main idea, as we see Is that God, the God that you serve, the God that you are here to worship today, the God who saved you, who sent his son to die on the cross for you, is a God who not only saves, but he delights to save. That's his greatest joy. That's the main idea in these three parables. That's what he's trying to show to the Pharisees. is Hey, You think you know God, but you don't know God, because if you knew God, the Father, you'd understand that for him there's no greater joy than to save sinners. That's what he's all about. That's what he loves to do. That's his delight. And then he starts with these three parables. The first parable, uh, we, we don't have to read through all of them, but it's the parable of the lost sheep. And the parable of the lost sheep, followed by the parable of the lost coin, followed by the parable of the lost son. These three parables are making the same point. But there's, a, of course, a twist to it at the, at the very last parable, the one that we're focusing on today. So the first parable, the Pharisees could relate to. right? Jesus makes a very simple point. Okay, you, you, you know sheep. Uh, this is part of their lives. Shepherds, they, they understood what, what it meant to have sheep. You have a hundred sheep. One of them is lost. You go and you find that one sheep. When you come back, what do you do? You celebrate, verse uh, verse 7. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This point is very clear in this parable. He's talking about him who, who is the shepherd. That's Jesus. That's God. The lost sinners, those are the sinners. And But and, and when you find, you throw a party you 're happy you throw it 's a party in heaven for one lost sheep that is fine. Foul. He moves to the second parable, and I want you to notice how he 's escalating in his argument. If he started with a hundred sheep, now he moves to ten coins, and coin of course special developed this particular coin is more valuable than sheep and now you 're not losing. One percent, but you're losing 10% of your coin, which is more valuable. What happens to this woman when she seeks all over the house and she finds finally this coin? What does she do? It says in verse 10, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, before one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven. One sinner repented. The joy of God is bouncing through the angels and and the saints in heaven, and they're all praising God for His great work of salvation. The picture in Revelation, the lamb who was slain. He was praised for what He accomplished in being slain for the saints, His salvation. Redeeming people from all tongues and colors and nations to worship Him forever. That's the joy of God. Now, the Pharisees could relate to those two illustrations. They understood the value of sheep, they understood the value of a coin now Jesus comes to the third parable now you don't have sheep. you're not talking about coins you're dealing with a father who lost a son one out of two that's not one, that's not ten, that's fifty percent of your sons and one thing that we know about Jewish culture and the Pharisees that they understood very well that the Old Testament put emphasis by by the number three, right? In English we have words like you have big, you have bigger, and you have the biggest, so you can emphasize this. This is the biggest castle I've ever seen. Seen in Hebrew, of course, you didn't have those words, so you'd repeat. You say this is the big, big, big castle, meaning it's not just big, it's not just big, big, it's big, big, big of a castle. That's why we say holy, holy, holy is the name of the Lord. That's the way to put emphasis. Jesus here is using that. He's giving three parables with the same point, stressing this one point, but the last one has a twig to it, which is this older son. What is his reaction? Everybody rejoiced in the other parables, but what is the reaction of this son in this third parable? He is ticked. He he, he can't get it. He, He doesn't understand. And... This is exactly the message that Jesus has to the Pharisees. You think you know God. If you knew God, you understand that if there's one thing that God rejoices in, is in saving sinners. And that's what we'll be looking at today. How Jesus brings about this illustration, this parable, about this lost son. And before I start with the first verse, as we walk through this text together, I'd like you to also... Have in mind that the culture here, of, of the Jewish culture is different. The Middle Eastern culture still today is different than the American culture in the sense that it is a shame-honor culture. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, this kind of idea. Uh, but but it, to put it simply, in, in America we're more individualistic. So we think more of, of being innocent or guilty. Uh, you, you think of someone, you know, if... Someone makes a mistake, it's their problem, they're paid for what they did. Where in Middle Eastern culture, there's a lot more to your family. If I do something wrong, if I'm a sinner, if I'm a simple person, I'm bringing shame not only to myself, but to my family and to my community. And, and this was a big part of who they were. That's why they were actually despised these people who were sinners, because they were bringing shame to everybody around them. And it will be helpful if you can keep that in mind as we read through these things, because that will come out even in the text we're reading today. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. According to Old Testament law, you don't receive the property, the, the, the things that your father owns until he dies. That's how you would work in, in that culture. So, this son, is coming to his father, who's still alive, and he's saying, Father, can I have the things that only when you die I should be receiving? In other words, he's saying, Father, would you die So that I can just do my thing without you? This is a shameful, again, this idea, that's why it's important to keep that in mind. This is a shameful request. And the Pharisees knew that. As they were listening to this, it's like, whoa, what kind of son would even have the courage to say such thing? And to ask such thing of his father? Um, You don't receive the inheritance here. Your father is dead. but that's why he comes. And and notice how disrespectful he is. What he's asking here is not even to say, Dad, I I think I have some business skills. I think I have some uh, opportunities with some friends. We've been thinking about things. Can you can you give us some of your money so that we can invest and we can try to you know I think grow my own thing out of it and, and develop. That's not what he's asking. He he's just saying, I just want to get what is mine and get out of here. I I don't care about who you are. I don't care what what you have done, if you have worked for this. I just want to get what is mine and I want to leave. He doesn't care about the father. Just just give him my stuff. Uh, We know also from Old Testament law that uh, his inheritance here was one-third of what the father had, which was a lot, right? We know that this man was a wealthy man. He had, based on other parts of the parable, he had a ring, he had a robe, he had a fattened calf, Servants. So this man was wealthy, and uh, he wants to get that one-third because the oldest son uh, would receive two-thirds, uh, double inheritance for being the oldest son. So, if anything, if the, old, the older son would be more the one to maybe ask something like that, if, if that was the case, but the younger son coming and saying, just give me what is mine. And this is a shameful thing. You would expect this father to just, you know, just get away from me! What, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. Even rebuke him for that request. Um, but it's interesting that the father even accepts that. And he says, okay, yeah, he divides his, his share with that son. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Something can be easily missed here. Like he said, Luke gives us the detail not many days later. This is relevant here because how do you liquidate property, a lot of stuff, as this father would have, just in a few days? They didn't have, you know, an offer up and, and Facebook market and all the things that you can just sell your chair. You put outside in the next two hours someone picked it up. That, that wasn't the case back then. And again, the person who is buying this, has to wait for the Father to actually die, to actually receive some of those goods, especially if it's land. So, how do you sell all that really quick? You sell it cheap. That's what he's doing. He's getting all this stuff. Just get me. Father, I just want to get whatever I can get out of you. I'll sell it cheap. I'll just pack the money, and I'm out of here. And I'm going to go into a far country. This is just absurd, absurd for, for the Pharisees as they're listening to all this. This is just an extreme you know this man this how can you be this shameful how can you be this insolent and the reflection here is that Jesus is painting the picture of sin this is what sin is this is what my sin looked like and what your sin looks like think about it everything that you have everything that you are and that you do is because God has gifted you with the body that you have the air you breathe, the family you have, the relationships, the money, everything you have comes from God. Your gracious and good Father. And every time you sin, what are you doing? You're saying, "I know all of this is yours. I know all of this comes from you. But can I just do my thing for a little bit? I, I, I love this idol of mine right here. Can you just wait outside?" Can you just be out of my life for a minute and I'm going to use the body you gave me, the money that you gave me, the hour that I breathe from you, and I'm going to sin against you. That's the picture of sin. That's what we do when we sin. We're not considering our father, our good father, but we are going after what we can get out of him, using the things that we receive from him for our own satisfaction. So hopefully all of us can see ourselves Uh, in this picture of the prodigal son here. And it says that this man went out into a far country. For the Pharisees, of course, far country, it doesn't really matter which country. Anywhere outside the promised land is a far country. The Jews are all about the land. I mean, 2,000 years after that, we're dealing with that again, right? They're about their land. That's what they love. That's where they want to be. And he goes somewhere else. It doesn't matter if it was Egypt, every time in, in Israel's history, after the Promised Land, if they're going away, it's trouble. It's either Egypt, or it's Babylon, or it's Persia, the Greeks, are, you don't want to go outside Israel. Uh, the, the tradition actually holds that Jews who are going outside Jerusalem, when they came back, they would actually uh, take the dust off of their sandals and of their clothes and everything before they walk in into the Promised Land, because they didn't want to bring any pagan dust into the land but that's where the son is going so again Jesus is painting extremes here he's trying to show what a sinner, what the most extreme of a sinner could look like in the minds of the Pharisees and there he squandered his property in reckless living Uh, this expression here he squandered uh, that's from where we got the word prodigal, prodigal son Uh, the one who squandered the one who doesn't save a single penny. one who just wastes everything, he uses everything, and he's doing that in reckless living. We're going to know exactly what this involved We know at least that later at the end of the verse 30. The older son says, you know, your son who went out and spent your money with prostitutes, so maybe that was included there. But that's what he's doing. He's enjoying his good life, he, he is doing his thing. And notice that Jesus paints the picture of many fools throughout his parables and throughout his teaching. But this is clearly the, the most extreme of all the fools Jesus has designed and, and, and taught in one of his stories. This is the extreme. Verse 14. He will add even more to it. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is not just the most foolish of all the sinners that Jesus has Portrayed of all the fools. This is the worst sinner, also in the worst possible context of providence, and the worst possible scenario that you could imagine. Look at this. Even if someone was this bad, the first are thinking, he can't get to this extreme. All these things happen at the same time. Come on, Jesus this is crazy. He is so poor. Famine happens. He loses everything. He's in a far country. He is in need, and so he hires himself out. Notice here that he's not looking for any sort of job. He hires himself out. He's a beggar. That's who he is. He's begging. He's saying, I'm starving. I'm going to die. Can you give me anything? He's, he's hiring himself out. He's not being. High, um, he's not. I guess the English caught me here, but he's the one asking and begging for anything that he can do. Any. I know I may be reading to the text here, but it is, to say the least, interesting that he's in a far country and these people knew Jews, right? They knew how much Jews love pigs. And it seems like this man is like, okay, you poor man, you're, you're there. You're a Jewish boy, right? You guys like pigs. I have a job for you if you want to have a job. There's some pigs over there. Why don't you go feed them? Touch them, you know. Uh, Play with them a little bit. It's Again, the worst sinner in the worst possible scenario. This is the misery of sin being represented here by Jesus. The Pharisees, of course, are having goosebumps at this point with the, the pigs. And notice that he can't even eat the pods of the pigs eat. The picture is worse than the pigs. And this is, uh, as we think of of today, as we try to think of maybe one point of application here, this is the picture of the reckless sinners. Not all of us sin this way, uh, but some some of us do. Uh, Some have just gone out in the world, and they're just enjoying the things of the world, and they don't want to do anything with the church. They just live, and they go. And the Bible is very clear. Sin leads to death. That's what it leads to. And some people just find themselves in that direction, where they will suffer the consequences of their own sin, their own decisions in going as far as you can go in that direction. Um, but there is a, a great encouragement here. And maybe this is the reason why I, did, I wanted to preach on this section here today. I, well, you know the end of the story, so you know there's more to where he is now. Here's, here's the, the bottom of, of his story. Uh, rock bottom. But why is this so important to each one of you in these fields this morning? Why is it so important for you to understand the story of this extreme sin? If God can deal, and if let's see what God is going to do, what the Father is going to do as he's dealing with this son, who is the picture of the worst sinner that none of us here in this Uh, room would be as far as the extreme of the sin and the explicity of it. What does that mean about you and me? We are here somewhere. God can treat and can show grace to one of these sinners. He can show grace to any of us, to all of us, to anyone in the world. This is what Jesus is trying to get here to the Pharisees. Who do you think you are? Look at the grace of God in verse 17. But when he came to himself, came to his senses, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Here we find the two main elements of repentance, true repentance, right? Repentance a change of mind. How do you come from a place where you're doing everything wrong? You're going away from the father. And now, what happens? They change you to move back to the father. You see two things. Your eyes are open to see two things. First one, you understand the misery of your condition. He came to himself. That's what he means here. He is eating with pigs. He can't even eat their food. He's just like, what happened to my life? What kind of living is this? What, what is this? What am I doing to myself here? But there's a second element. Not only realize the wickedness of your own heart, but he also wants to see. The goodness of the father. Look, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Maybe if he only realized his condition, you only let him to feel shameful and, and shame and guilt for, for who he, what he's done. And you actually push him away from going back home. But he saw that there was some sort of hope because of the character of that father. My father, there are these hired servants. The word hired servants here, by the way, there are several, at least six Six or seven words, depending on how you look at it, for servants in the New Testament. And the word used here is a word for those servants that the Old Testament says that they had to be paid every single day. You couldn't wait. You couldn't just wait a week or a month. At the end of each day, you had to pay those laborers because they're so poor that they couldn't even survive if you didn't pay them every day. And, and this is the kind of servants, the hired servants. Uh, you see them in a different parable where um, the master comes, and he comes six a.m., you know, early in the morning, and then the third hour, nine a.m., at noon, and he hires those different men and says, "I'll pay at the end of the day." I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, and then at the end, of the, the point of that parable is that at the end of the day, they all come and they got paid the same thing, and the ones who worked the whole day complain, okay, why, "Why am I getting the same thing?" It's like. That was my deal. I told you I was going to pay X, and I'm paying you X. But those are the high servants uh, that you pay every day. And he's saying, those men receive more than enough bread. My father gives them more than what they deserve according to the market. He is a generous father. He is a good father. He's a kind father. My father is good. That's the second thing he realized. Like, what am I doing here? He came to himself. His father is good. Why am I perishing here with hunger? And that's the call of God to sinners. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk with Christ. It doesn't matter how much you have messed up or someone else. The father is good and he rejoices in salvation. That's what he wants. As we've seen in a minute. And actually, let's um, just, just read the next section. Let's move on. He says, I'll rise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He, he knows the shame. He knows it's going to be hard to go home and he's willing to do whatever it takes. He, he maybe I'll just work and try to pay this off, whatever I can do. But I, I just want to be home. Uh, the very idea of repentance, it's interesting that uh, Milton, in his book, Paradise Lost, this idea of going home, that's what he actually defines as repentance. There's a quote here from uh, Milton and I'll read to you. He says, we lost paradise when we turned away from God, and each person turned to his own way. So today, when we call people to repentance, it is appropriate to think of it in terms of going home. Back to where we were originally, in the presence of God, in fellowship with God, and in submission to God. The call to repentance is a call to return, a call to go back home. And that's what we see here. This repentance is realizing, why did I ever move from the design that the God had, that the Father had, to my life? So he plans all this, he comes home, and he says in verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. Now, the Pharisees at this point, they may actually be enjoying this story. Think about it. The Pharisees are complaining about all these sinners. That's the context. And Jesus paints the worst possible sinner. And he's describing very vividly. So the Pharisees were like, okay, Jesus now, maybe Jesus came to his senses. Maybe now he is dealing with these people. He's describing the sinners. And as the son is now coming home, they're thinking, okay, this story was so bizarre until now, but now it got interesting. What kind of punishment can you even imagine that the father could, a good father can come up with to, to deal with a son like this? A son that did all this shameful behavior, all brought all this shame to, the, to his father. How can you work that out? How many years of work is it going to be? What kind of Of course, we know that according to the law, the punishment here would be death. He would be stoned to death based on the things that were described about what he did. But the Pharisees are just like, this is just crazy. But they're they're waiting for it. And it says, verse 1, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And Jesus here makes clear, and, and he, he makes sure that he puts this here, the Father is the one seeking. Romans 3. No one seeks God. God is the one who seeks the sinner. Uh, the, the son is still a long way off, but the Father, this whole time, again, it's about his character. The point of the parable is the joy of God in saving sinners. He's been waiting for this son for this long. He's waiting. He's looking from afar, and the son is still a long way off. The Father saw him and felt compassion. What does it mean to feel compassion? The very word compassion, at least in Hebrew, uh, comes from the word womb. The very idea of a a, a mother who loves their children. And that's the idea of the word compassion or mercy um, comes from that. And it's this idea of someone who can empathize, someone who can feel the pain. And that's what's happening here when it says that the father felt compassion. The son is coming, He's dirty He's dirty of his prostitution. He's dirty of whatever he did. his smelling like pigs. The father sees all that and he feels compassion. What does that mean? He feels the pain of the son in his very soul. Whatever the son is feeling, the contrite heart, the repentance, the broken spirit, the father feels in himself that compassion and he runs he ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the reaction of the father. He shows compassion on his lost son. The father is waiting. The father is uh, watching. He embraces him. Notice that when he runs, uh, this was not a very good thing for an old man in Middle East. Actually, it actually was not very respectful. Uh, there is actually a sense in which a man, an old man who would pull his garments up and run especially an old man that was actually shameful uh, an old man is the one who is there and then the younger people come to him in that culture but he runs he embraces him he kisses him and the pharisees were are they thinking this is shameful what kind of father is this doesn't he care about his reputation doesn't he care about the honor of his family and the honor of his community Uh, This idea here of embracing, there's a shift here where all the shame of the son now, the Pharisees are confused again because that shame now is being shifted to the father. The father is taking upon himself the shame of everything that that the son did. But of course we know from many texts in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart, O God, you do not despise we know that this is what God wants he wants someone who comes and notice this for the first time in the whole parable you see the son coming to the father not because of his stuff not based on what he can get out of the father as he was before but now he comes because he understands that the father is good he wants to be with the father and that's what the father wants more than anything else is a son who is there because he loves him Jesus' point is very clear As far as, think of the big picture. Sheep. You lost sheep, you find the sheep, you throw a party. It's great. You lost your coin, you find your coin, you throw a party. It's great. You lost your son, you found your son, you throw a party. It's great. There's joy in heaven. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate, for this my son was dead, and is now alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. That's the joy of God. That's the best day of the life of this father, is that his son was found, and he throws a party. And notice here, if if again, sometimes it's difficult with parables, because we don't want to make an analogy to everything, but the idea of justification by faith alone. Again, there is no work involved. The son is not called to do anything. It's immediate. It happens. The, the son is there. He's received the, the father. comes. He embraces him. Give him the robe. The robe of the father. His glory. His ring. The ring is his authority. It's, it's, it's what he used to steal deals with the mark of the family. That's there. He, I share with him my inheritance. He is my son. Give him my ring. Put shoes on his feet. He's not just like the servants working in the field. He can't wear shoes. Kill the fattened calf. The worst sinner ever described in the Bible, in the more details, lavished by grace. That's your story. That's my story. We have done what the son has Done. we have just wasted our lives with sin. We have lived for ourselves. We have said to the Father, would you die? Can I just do my thing? Can I just live life the way I feel pleased? And yet, we have found our Savior who searched for us, who washed us from our sins, and who loves us. And who gives us so much more than we can imagine. We inherited in him all things, all the promises of God, a yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us. And this is where this younger son finds himself before the father, before his grace, being lavished by his goodness and his compassion as he's back home now loving the father. The grace of God is beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. We don't understand our salvation. I don't think we will until we get to heaven. It's just too much for us to comprehend the cross. Now, as I said before, the story is not really about this son. The story is about the older son. Now, verse 25. His older son was in the field and he was and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf." because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered the father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him, And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Guess who is not at the party? Guess who is not at the party? It's the older son. See, some... People are, just like, are more like the first. I, I think most of us would be a mix of these two. We have sin in both ways. But some are more like the younger son. We just go in the world and we're reckless living. We want to experience what the world can offer. And that brings death and, and, and we find ourselves in a similar situation with the first son. But some of us, maybe especially covenant children, we may find ourselves in the category of the second son. We are in the house. We're there. We're walking around people. We're in the house of God, and we come to church, and we read his word, and we can we know how to say the words and pray. But do we really have a relationship with the father? As we notice here, not really, as far as this son goes. He he was there, but notice that he's not in the party. And even when he realized that there's something going on, he doesn't go to the father. What do you expect? Dad, what's going on? He calls a servant to come, and he asks, you know, what's going on here? Um, notice that even when he says, he talks to the father, the way he words things is really interesting. He says, you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with whom? With my friends. It's not even, you know, you never celebrated with me. I just want to spend time with you, dad. That's not what you're seeing. He's like, I just wanted to enjoy my friends a young goat. And you wouldn't even give me that to go enjoy for myself. So he's there, but he, just like the first son in the very beginning, he's just like, it's, it's a different strategy to the same end. What does he care about? He cares about the stuff. What can I get out of this? But instead of just being explicit, would you die? Let me just get my stuff and leave. He's there, Dad, I love you. But he's just waiting for the father to die. And then he can keep his honor, his respectable. It's just a better strategy than the first son. The first son is foolish. Everyone knows how that's not smart. But the second son, he's playing the game the right way. When the father dies, he gets to his two-thirds and he's happy. Now he can enjoy life for himself. He called one of the servants. He asked about the party. And notice that it says he was angry when he heard what happened. And he refused to go in. That throws back to verse 3 in the beginning of the chapter. where Who who were angry? The Pharisees. They were angry because Jesus was eating with sinners. Here is the same situation. He was angry and refused to go in. Here is the interesting thing. What is keeping the older son from the party? It's his own goodness. It's his own goodness. He refused to go in because he has never disobeyed a command. And yet he doesn't receive a young goat. It's his own goodness. It's his religiosity, if you want to put it that way, that's keeping him from joining the party. The father comes out and entreats with him. The same father who comes down. To the younger son, and the father now coming out of the party, coming to the field and reasoning with this son and saying, Son, all that I have is yours. You, um, what does he say? You're always with me. All that is mine is yours. Think about the Jews. Among anyone who could repent, the Jews had the law. They had everything. They, they they've been with God for generations. If you're a Pharisee, you know about the law. You know about temple worship and the symbolism and the sacrifices. If anyone, you would be the one joining the party. You'd be the one loving the Father and seeing his goodness. And yet, he cannot see it. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Uh, We know that as we... Read through the New Testament. Many sinners came into repentance. But actually, as far as Pharisees, we only know of one. Maybe you can tell me another one if I missed it. But I can only think of Nicodemus as a Pharisee that clearly we know uh, came to repentance uh, during the the ministry of Jesus. And again, that's the difficulty of, of, of religion. Religion can be a lot more blinding sometimes than just being in the world and, and lost. And, and again, the Spirit of God is the one who can help us either way. Um, but but the, the danger here is, when we come to church, do you come, why do you come here for? Today is very common for people to come to church for fellowship. And there are all these secondary reasons. And this is a small church. Maybe that's not the point here. Uh, maybe the challenge is more, you know, why do I come to church? Yes, you know, there's not a lot of kids my age. It's not really, you know, I just go there, and there's not really much for me. It's a great thing when we pursue all those things, having friends and, and 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 having a good time at church. But the primary reason of coming to church is that it is here. You know, forget about TikTok and for, you know, there are all these cool things that you could do out there, but it is here that we hear God's word. Even if you just come, you listen to the preaching, and there's not much else to that. This is God's Word. Do you love God? Do you see the goodness of the Father? That among all the people of the world, the people out there, you have been privileged as a covenant child to to grow up in a place where you can come and you can hear God speak. The one true and living God who created the heavens and the earth. The hymn we sang before, How Great Thou Art. We praise How Great Thou Art. And if you look at those four sections that we sing, it starts with creation. He created you. He created the whole world. He gave us good things and a great design to life and the world and nature. But also he has given us a second creation. He is the author of your salvation, of your soul. He loves you and he sent his son to die for you. And he wants you to enjoy all the benefits of his salvation. Communion, prayer, being instructed by his word. Right now you can know that as you live this church and you go live your life in the world, whatever you're doing, you have the help of his Holy Spirit assisting you in everything that you do. And he loves you and he cares for you. He is a good father. Do you see him that way? Is that the father you come to church to hear and to worship? The father who loves you? And who instructs you from His Word? And every time you come here, is a privilege that again it took this Son to be with pigs to realize what He was missing. So don't, don't go in that direction. Don't go in that direction. Understand the reality and the beauty of what you have here in the church. The Father entreats Him, and of course, uh, the interesting thing here to this parable particularly, is that it doesn't really have an end. It's open-ended. It's just the father entreats with the son and says, you know, just come back to the party, just join us. Would you do that? And there's no end. We don't know what happened. So, I'll conclude with something that may be a little unorthodox, but it's something that John MacArthur did in uh, a book, a thin book, worth your time. I mean, it's not very long, 120 pages or something short. And it's on the parable of the prodigal son. A lot of interesting things there. I actually drew a lot of these things from that book. But the end is really interesting what he does. So, in a very clever way, he, he ends this parable by saying, we can think of two different possible endings to this parable. The first one reads like this. This is from John MacArthur. Then, after the father had been treated with his older son, then the elder son fell on his knees before the father, saying, I repent for my bitter, loveless heart, for my hypocritical service, and for my pride and self-righteousness. Forgive me, Father. Make me a true son and take me inside to the feast. The father then embraced his firstborn son, took him inside, and seated him alongside his brother in dual seats of honor. They all rejoiced together, and the level of joy that was already amazing, that already amazing, of that already amazing celebration suddenly doubled. So that's the idea. There is now more joy because another son came into the party. And that, that that's, that's an end. Now, if we think of the historical context as we read the rest of the gospel, again, Jesus like a flint isn't going to Jerusalem. He's in this mission. And he's preaching to sinners, he's preaching to Pharisees. What happened? Now I'm going to read to you what John MacArthur claims to be the real ending of this parable. After hearing his father's words, the elder son was outraged at his father. He picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. That's the real ending of the story. That's what happened. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who could not relate to the sinners. And as the Pharisees are listening to this, they're looking at the older son. They're saying, someone has to bring justice to this society. That shameful son, and now the father is not going to do anything about it. Who is going to uphold justice? Who is going to bring honor and, and, and respect to this family? The older son, he comes to you. Now you have to beat up this dad and make sure that someone is paying for what happened here. He was the Pharisees, he was the Jews, I mean, many, but especially the leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who plotted against Jesus to kill him because of what he was doing and what he was preaching, his good news of salvation to those sinners. Jesus was often called a hypocrite and immoral and all kinds of different things for relating to those men. And if you think about it, this is the perfect picture of the cross. It is at the cross that that took place. And what the older son couldn't realize, what the Pharisee couldn't realize, is that by doing that, the father was accomplished in his perfect justice, the salvation of the sin. That's what he was doing. He was taking upon himself the shame, all the misery that the son had. To, and he was willing to pay. He was willing to go out of his party and pay for the price Hebrews twelve two, Jesus, for the joy, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame, he took that shame on himself. The shame of your sins, all the weakness of the disrespect that we have caused to our Father in Heaven. As we said, Father, would you die for me? Let me just live my life. Let me let me enjoy my idol. All that shame. Has taken upon himself at the cross so that you could enjoy the benefits of his salvation. And that is the reason why in heaven the four creatures and the 24 elders are worshiping and praising the Lamb who was slain and who has accomplished salvation for all people of all colors and tongues and you name it, all throughout the world, as the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading through the world and bringing. The glory of this party to to, to its climax as people are being saved and they're coming to heaven. And that's, we're looking forward to that, to being part of that party as we get to heaven and celebrate for eternity the work of the Son at the cross. Praise be His name. We praise Him for His goodness. We thank Him. And we conclude praying to Him and, and worshiping Him for what He has accomplished for us. Glory is your name. We worship you and praise in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.